Dude, my electricity bills are over $1,600 a month. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to <laughs> From the Ground Up podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode portcitypythons.com we do have animals that are going to be available they're going up onto the website probably in the next couple days actually we have florida king snakes that are het hypo lavender mosaic as well as we are going to have a bunch of corn snake babies available very very soon springtails on ebay yeah other than that in less than three weeks we'll be at haver de grace in maryland august 10th Come out and see us if you live in the Maryland area. And we will most likely still have, hopefully we'll ha- still have some king snakes or corn snakes or we'll hopefully definitely corn not, snakes. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully we'll still have some kings. We will definitely have corns. Yeah. But it will be nice to get out of our first show for the year and yeah. see everyone and hang out. And we haven't been to Haver to Grace yet. So that'll be our first show in Maryland because we had to, and we had to get these uh, fancy permits not that that cost ten dollars speaking of that hasn't come in i need to call and check on that i forgot about that it's in the mail you forgot how the mail works right yeah but it's been a a while yeah i just want to call to make sure it's all right no it's probably been a week and a half i don't know we're in we're rambling yes we are we should talk about this in our 15 minute show 15 minutes on facebook every single day if you guys check out our facebook page before this live stream or before this podcast rather we actually live stream for 15 minutes just talking about who knows what. And we do that every single day on our Facebook page. So if you want to hear more about our lives or trials, tribulations, all that stuff, it's more uh, it's more real talk than because obviously these podcasts focus on the guests. Mm-hmm. And the, that's 15 minutes where we get to just have fun and talk about randomness. Yeah. But today. But today. <laughs> We have Corey from Toothless Reptiles. And Corey works with monitors, which is something that we have touched on on the podcast. But as you guys know, we are novices. So Corey, thank you so much for being here. And can you give us a little overview on how you got started in reptiles? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's always nice to talk to fellow reptile people. And usually it's just me talking to myself in front of my kids. <laughs> so it's nice to have a report. Um, I, uh, basically I've, I've been into reptiles and, and animals my entire life. Uh, my family was really involved in project wildlife growing up. So I remember, uh, before I could even drive and, and even earlier, 13, 12 years old, I would go with my brother who had just gotten a permit, um, to drive. We would go rescue possums, uh, that people would call in as, uh, you know, possums that were terrorizing their yards or maybe somebody went into a shed and found a possum or uh, the worst ones were when a mom got hit on the highway and there were babies in the pouches. Um, We would go collect those and um, we would rehabilitate them at our house and then uh, ultimately let them go back into the wild. And we always had pets growing up, iguanas, leopard geckos, all kinds of stuff, Uh, pot belly pigs. Um, I had a, I had a pot belly pig up until recently. We had to put her down, but her name was notorious PIG. (laughs) <laughs> so she was, she was like, 
she ran the yard. It was like prison at our house. <laughs> she just ran the yard, you know? So, um, she was, she was really cool. And, and, uh, I went off on a tangent, but the reptiles, um, especially the larger Varanus and larger lizards I got into when I was about 18 or 19, I actually started breeding, uh, tegus, um, in San Diego, which is really hard to do because we had to build a, a chamber to hibernate them in with an air conditioner attached to it. And, um, I ended up, uh, I got an Argus monitor and the thing was evil. It was so evil. And, uh, I couldn't, I could barely, you know, maintain its enclosure or anything. And so, um, pet kingdom, a, a pet store down here in San Diego, it's the largest pet store down here in, in Southern California, a really, really nice place. And, um, I took the Argus to them and I was like, Hey, you know, I don't want anything for this Argus. It's, it's nasty. You know, um, and they were like, oh, well, let us give you something in return. So they ended up giving me a, an import water monitor that they had. Like and, that would uh, be a better outcome. But I yeah, guess. But was. that's Yoshi. So Yoshi came from that. And Yoshi's 17 years old now. So she's uh, and she she produces eggs on like clockwork. She's my oldest water monitor. And I got Yoshi, and um, as soon as I got her, there was like an instant connection. She was super nice and inquisitive. She would walk around my house with the tegus that I still had, and my cats and my dogs, they would all like roam the house, you know, not permanently, but for a couple hours every day, I'd let them out. And um, uh, it just started my love of, of Varanus, just their intelligence, and I built her a huge enclosure and um, she started laying eggs, and that's when I got into breeding. So I started looking into breeding a little bit, and you know, 14 years later, 15 years later, I'm sitting in an enclosure that looks like I'm on vacation in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> so as we've learned, there's like a lot of different camps on keeping as far as monitors go, and there's a lot of like different opinions. So. It looks like you keep large enclosures that seem to be pretty naturalistic. Yeah, for the most part, um, I try to, um, I think a lot of people's opinions comes from them kind of having certain goals in mind. And, and especially if you're in breeding and you want to just make money, your goals are a lot different than the guy who wants to keep a pet. So for me, I always want to keep all my animals as pets first and production will come, you know, a happy animal will produce. Um, and that's what I've always banked on. And for me, I've, I've always had an engineering background. I work in the aerospace field. Um, I work on the, the big military drones specifically, you know, the fire missiles and all kinds of stuff. They're huge. And um, so I've always been really interested in building anything. So I build all these cages and, I try to keep them naturalistic, but you know, it's, it's a far stretch from being natural, <laughs> you know, I mean, you're, you're, they come from New Guinea, you know, the, the croc monitors, which is the second largest Island on planet earth. And you're still putting them in a cage, you know, so you want to just make it as stress-free as you can. And um, I think I've accomplished that as much as I can on a, on a spectrum of still obviously keeping them in captivity. But yeah, I always shoot for, for, for naturalistic and, uh, but more importantly, functionality. And then it's easy to make something look naturalistic. You know? And then going off of, you know, that 
mentality. I know some people feel that UVB may not be necessary and others find that it's crucial. So uh, what are your, kind of your opinions around that? Well, what do you think they get in the wild? Why I think would they, you not I think they want to get tubs? <laughs> you know, you know, they're not they're not under uh, you know halogen floodlights in the wild. They're under the sun, so it comes down to risk. You know, what do you risk in giving an animal something that it has naturally? You don't risk anything. So the risk comes in when you start taking things away because you feel like they don't need them. And then on top of that, how do you define need? Okay, does, does my lizard die when I don't give it this stuff? You know, that that's a ridiculous way to define need, especially in captivity. And, and especially with a robust animal like a varanid, you know, there's a lot of stressors and a lot of things you can do to them where they're not gonna die, but they're gonna be upset, they're not gonna produce, they're gonna be stressed out. And a lot of people don't pick up on a lot of that stuff. And you know, myself included, I know these animals, a lot of them like the back of my hand, but there's times where I'm wondering what I did and what happened. You know, I'm still surprised a lot of times with just certain things. And I've been doing this a really long time. So, I mean, I always try to just give them anything they need and just lower the risk factors as much as possible. I mean, yeah, do, do they maybe not need UVB to process calcium like uh, an iguana would? You know, I, I don't think they do. Um, from what I've seen, it seems like they can process a lot of things without UV, but, you know, I would never not give them that. Why to spend just so I can buy my bulbs from Home Depot instead of the pet store? It seems ridiculous. So you must, it seems like the snake community must be the polar opposite of what mm -hmm. of what you're describing is I mean we've gotten it down to the very minimal we can do to make an animal breed and live consistently over time yeah so, and i'm yeah. not saying it's right or wrong but no it's 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 not you know i think i think snake breeders and, and snakes in general they don't really need here's here's what Here's what the biggest need is between those two species. One species has a great deal of intelligence and they need psychological nourishment. A snake, on the other hand, doesn't really need a whole lot of psychological nourishment. You know, um, if, there was, if, if there was one need that was between those two, I would say the nourishment factor. I mean, obviously there is a spectrum where you have snakes that are you know, more prone to being handled and they've been trained to where people pick up on them maybe having a personality trait or, oh, my snake loves me and doesn't like that thing. You know, and it could be just the cologne that that guy wears, not necessarily that the snake recognizes him, you know, but I feel like, and not to say anything bad about snakes, <laughs> there could be a less intelligent than monitors, 100%. you know, so, yeah, and you're dealing with, you know, the croc monitors are the most intelligent reptile on planet Earth. And then you have the water monitors that are probably a distant third, you know, but there's it's just a whole different ballgame. You know, I, I think that the it's a lot easier the the taboo in snakes is a lot more broad because so many people are doing it that way. Um, I think if you had monitor lizards where they were pretty handleable and workable and they were healthy and you could shove them in a drawer and still produce lizards, I bet you everybody would be doing it. 
Yeah, that's unfortunate how you can, you know, if you give someone a shortcut, they're going to take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but but speaking of like the the mental acuity of, of the monitor, what are your interactions like? Like, how do you build this relationship? Or if you don't at all, let me know. Um, some animals you have to realize aren't going to get to a certain place. And I think realizing that they have a limit on the level of interactions you're going to have is going to set you leaps and bounds ahead of you having expectations that are never going to be met. So like I have uh, an almost eight foot wild caught black dragon from Thailand. He's my breeding male. His job is to breed. That's his job. My job is to take care of him and keep him healthy. Aside from that, that is where our relationship ends. <laughs> we have a level of respect where when I'm working in the cage, he's at the bottom of the pond and he stays down there the whole time. He knows that if he comes up out of the pond, I leave. So he usually, he'll stay in the pond, wait for noises to stop. And then he'll come back out. He knows that the cage is done being serviced or whatever, but... He's never going to be a tame animal. I never want him to be a tame animal. He's a great breeder. He's not aggressive towards the females. He serves a, a purpose. He does it really well. He's in the largest of all the water monitor enclosures. So his enclosure is uh, 12 feet deep, 8 feet wide, and 8 feet tall. And um, he has the largest pond of the water monitors. So he's well taken care of. And he's huge. So he eats well and he breeds well. Um, but with other animals like Onyx, she expects a certain amount of interaction. And I expect to have a result from those interactions. So she came to me with a really good temperament. And my job is now to maintain that temperament, continue psychological enrichment enough to where she doesn't resent me as an owner. <laughs> because they will hold grudges. Like if I take Onyx to the vet for an x-ray... Um, as gentle as it is, and, and Dr. Jenkins uh, is very gentle with the animals, she does not like getting thrown in a tote and put in a car and taken to the vet. So she will hate me for two weeks. And that's just how it is, you know? So I have to be careful around her for two weeks. She'll tail whip and huff and puff and she won't eat. But after that, she starts to regress back into her normal, you know, normal habits and, and she's good to go. And um, I think... I think the biggest thing is giving the animals the respect first and then seeing what they give you back. Because if you force yourself on an animal to try to gain respect where there is none to be gained, you're going to get clipped. And by clipped, I mean bit and sent to the hospital. So especially with the croc monitors, I mean, they have the worst bite of any land lizard, you know, right next to the Komodos. And um, there's actually a huge, almost eight foot, male croc that's at the top um, up here. So if you see it creeping down, warn me. Please tell me. It'd make for a great podcast, but I would have to leave right away. <laughs> I don't want that to happen. That is wild. So that is, that's definitely an animal to where I've heard so many mixed opinions on croc monitors. Yeah. To where, I mean, obviously a very, very dangerous animal. Yeah. Yeah, they're... There's a reason they're the most advanced species to keep in captivity. And it's not necessarily that their requirements um, to keep them healthy is 
is crazy. You know, you definitely don't need a 30 by 60 steel building with 16 foot tall enclosures and full size king palms. You know, I just did that because I'm an extremist when it comes to my animals. Um, but the biggest thing that I see with the croc monitors is they always know more than you as a keeper. You know, they're, they're thinking about all this stuff all day and you're at work and you have kids and, and you're doing other things. You're not thinking about this all day. They know they're thinking about it all day. So if there's ever a change to their habitat that they don't like or whatever, they can relate it straight to you. It's just a totally different level of intelligence where you have to think of it. You have to think of it as a relationship and not all relationships are good, you know, and a lot of them take a lot of work. Um, I'm married. Trust me. They <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, it's just one of those things where if there's, there's no forgiving when you have a croc monitor, if it bites you, that's it. And that's going to ruin your confidence and in your interactions with that animal, probably for the rest of its existence, because you're always going to be scared. But um, on the flip side, if you have a croc monitor that you develop a nice rapport with and they're, they're not stressed out, you keep them out of stressful situations, you know, they're, they're really, really awesome lizards. It's just the average keeper is not going to do well with a croc monitor. They're just not. Right. So if someone were to buy a croc monitor for you, are there certain things you tell them in the, in the beginning, certain ways they should act or things they should do since that, you know, relationship isn't built yet? You know, like when you first start dating someone, you don't show your true self yet. Yeah, you keep it on the down low. You make sure you delete all your ex-boyfriend's pics off of your stuff. You got to put a limit on your timeline. You know, oh, you got catfished. <laughs> like, dude, I got catfished by the crop breeder. This is messed up. <laughs> he doesn't send me a water monitor. <laughs> um, honestly, it, it the cool thing about croc monitors is that it's kind of known that they're so advanced that a lot of people won't contact me unless they already have other experience. Um, and I would never, ever, ever recommend a croc monitor as a first lizard, it is a horrible idea. You know, you don't, just like what, what you were saying, you don't, <laughs> you don't want your first girlfriend to be a supermodel. You build up to that. <laughs> Otherwise it ruins your confidence and all the other ladies, you think they're all high maintenance and then you can't get a girl. You're deathly afraid of women. So it's the exact same concept. <laughs> so, so, um, I always tell people start out with something else, but even then the, the spectrum of differences between a, a water monitor that I would consider to be the next advanced is so different. Um, like I had been working with the water monitors for 13 or 14 years before I had even gotten my first big croc monitor. And as soon as I got him, I was like, oh my gosh, I am so uncomfortable right now. You know, everything was so different. Just the way they look at you, the way they act, their body language, everything was really, really, really foreign. Um, I had been stuck in a comfort zone with the water monitors for a very long time. And I've been really lucky that, you know, all of my females are really, really handleable and awesome. All of my males has, have always been not awesome <laughs> at all. So I've had, you know, a decent spectrum to work with as far as temperaments, but... 
the croc monitors were just a whole different ballgame. So what are those signs that you see that whether the animal's comfortable, happy, willing to interact? I mean, what are the kind of signs that something like a croc monitor would give you? Um, croc monitors and, and lace monitors, especially lace monitors are really close cousins to the crocs. Um, their tails will curl if they're in where they're trying to uh, kind of close themselves up to be a little bit smaller, like they're getting ready to be challenged. Um, and uh, little things like that. The other thing they'll do is they'll drag, uh, the males will drag their crotch <laughs> on the ground um, as if they're trying to mark their territory almost. And that kind of shows you that they're, they think there's a threat around. Um, if you have a male that's head bobbing, that's really bad. I've never had that happen, but that happens with the other females. Um, obviously open mouth, um, hissing with the croc monitors is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it does definitely show that they're uncomfortable and that's probably what you'll see first. Um, but like with a tame animal, it doesn't usually lead to, it doesn't escalate from there. You know, they'll, they'll huff and puff like, Hey, leave me alone. But then once you get a hold of them, they're like, Oh, okay. You know, so it's honestly a lot of it. it you just kind of pick up as you go along. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's insane because uh, the animals, they all have different personalities. So one does one thing. Another does a, a totally different thing. Like even Onyx, Onyx won't eat rats for some stupid reason. She just won't eat rats. She knows the texture and the smell. I can cut the rat's tail off and rub it down with uh, uh, chicken breasts or anything. She won't eat them. It's super weird, but they all have little quirks that they they, they have. It's, it's, it's odd. And how much, especially something like a croc monitor, do you mitigate any risk? Like how much would you trust even an animal that, you know, you handled steadily? Yeah, like I don't, I, w I would never lend my animals out to somebody for show. Um, I don't let kids uh, touch them anywhere by their face. Um, there's always a risk, regardless of how tame an animal is, there's always a risk. And it has nothing to do with that animal having a moment of aggression. It usually has to do with the environment that you put them in, whether they're uncomfortable or they just haven't been exposed to a lot of stuff. Um, for instance, like my tame croc monitor, I had to have my uh, my left knee rebuilt. I played college football and I was on the Olympic training team for gymnastics. I've been, I've wrecked my body. And um, I had to have my left knee reconstructed uh, like a year ago. And I needed to move my big croc male who was super tame uh, out of my uh, big sunroom that I had at my old house. And uh, my brother came over to move him. And I'm like, look, he's super tame. He's not gonna do anything. But if you step on his tail, he's going to bite you in the face. So don't step on his tail. So he had him around his neck and he's holding his tail like all the way up here. There was no way he's going to step on it. But, you know, little stuff like that, a lot of people don't realize. Um, even with Onyx, if, uh, and we literally just had this happen uh, when Forrest Fanning and, and MJ Exotics was over here on, on Sunday. Um, he took his phone out to take a picture of Onyx. And with a black phone and a uh, lens for the camera, well, a lot of times the monitor sees that reflection. And they think it's eyeballs and they think that's food. So she went to grab his phone with her mouth and it was like the coolest video ever. But those are things that just happened. She wasn't being aggressive. She wasn't mad or upset. 
But if you don't understand, at least to some degree, the mentality of a reptile, you know, you're going to you're going to put that lizard in, in a in a in a in an area where it's it's not it's not meant to be. And now you kind of hit on it a tiny bit, but are there times in which, I mean, they can have preference to different people, meaning are your monitors more comfortable around you than others? Can they actually recognize those kinds of things? Yeah, like if any other people come into the building, when I'm not here, a lot of the animals will reclude, you know, back into the enclosures. Um, the monitors will go down into the bottom of the water tubs, um, especially like the, the hybrids, especially, and the, the parthenogenic animal. He'll, uh, they just flat out won't come out. You have to force them to come out, and then they huff and puff and just pace the cage. They're like, leave me alone, you know. Normally, they're they're used to literally just me interacting with them. I do all this stuff by myself, so it's all you know. They they love me. They're my they're my buddies. <laughs> so we we had Jonathan Hoke in the chat ask about breeding. So I know you talked about the ramifications of the teeth on you, but uh, what yeah. about male versus female, or even if two males met? I mean, what are the repercussions there? So it, it depends. Uh, with the water monitors, I've gotten really, really good with their timing where I'm not putting a female in with a male when she's not cycling. Um, and that's the biggest mistake you can make. And a lot of people don't realize that, that you do not need a male around to have a female cycle. So you can get a female water monitor, get them in a nice enclosure, feed them well, get their habitat set up perfectly for breeding, and they will start cycling. Then as soon as they start laying eggs, that's when you start your ground zero for timing to, okay, a month from now, month and a half from now, she should be receptive. And then you put them in with the male for a couple weeks and you see how that goes. And you take the male right back out. That's it. That's your only interactions is a couple weeks. Um, you get issues with people who leave the croc or leave their water monitors or males and females together, either when the female's not cycling or after the female's done with a male, or the worst is, is when the female's trying to nest. So they become very territorial over that entire enclosure because that becomes a nesting site. Um, I've even had it to where if, if I have to use a similar or the same enclosure that an animal nested in, I literally have to remove the nest box out of the enclosure in order to relieve that female of that stress. So she now doesn't recognize that enclosure as a lay area and she'll breed. But the, the, usually it's the females that are more aggressive towards the males and then the males get pissed and they retaliate and then you have issues. Um, the water monitors will grab and actually tear um, which is horrible. We've had to have surgery on females multiple times to have them reconstructed. Um, usually it, they, they end up grabbing an arm almost always um, right in the armpit area and they, they'll tear the pec muscle underneath as well. Um, and Dr. Jeff Jenkins at Avian and Exotics Animal Hospital here in San Diego is amazing. So he, he always helps us out. And um, the croc monitors are a lot more intelligent. If they have an issue with another monitor to where they need to use aggression, they literally nip and let go and that's it. So they don't grab on to tear. They're not trying to hurt anybody or kill anyone. Um, it's literally just a, hey, leave me alone. I'm the dominant one in here. Um, some of the cool things I've seen is I've literally seen 
Um, you know how like on Nat Geo and Animal Planet, you'll see like the two Komodos like wrestling, you know, or there's that famous video where they're like fighting in the middle of the road. Like I had a, uh, a dominant female that I had, actually the same female who pushed our other animals into parthenogenesis. Um, she was in with another male and they just started going at it wrestling. Uh, didn't bite each other, no nothing. And uh, our other male was a big sulfur male. And uh, yeah, it was, it was really cool to see, but usually the interactions aren't like that. So it, it was really weird to see why did they decide to wrestle as opposed to normally it's a totally different thing. That's the only time I've ever had two monitors like, no, let's just wrestle this out. <laughs> you know? did, you, did you think maybe was she a proven female or that's did you what, think you that's had where maybe my brain went too. Like that? that was exactly where my brain went. So she was actually sold to us by nerd as a proven male. And then she laid eggs a year later. So <laughs> very proven. <laughs> yeah which i don't understand she was six feet when we got her so there was no reason why she couldn't have been sexed um but (laughs) so so we had put them together and she had laid eggs before that and we were seeing if she would possibly breed with a larger male because she won't she wouldn't breed with anybody she was massive and uh she wouldn't that was the last interaction we had was with that big male and they just wrestled and she never submitted and uh, I'm like, this isn't worth it. You know, I don't keep, I don't need the animals to breed. I don't pay my bills with the breeding that they do. So if we have something where something's iffy or I don't think it's healthy for the animals or we have an aggressive reaction, um, I separate the animals. It's not worth, you know, try again in a week or whatever, or maybe we won't try again at all. It doesn't matter. So they're, they're pets first and foremost. Do you experience anything with your females like uh, egg binding? Yeah, we've had that happen uh, once, but it wasn't actually here. So um, we had an issue with uh, Akbar Akram, who I don't know if you've heard of, but he's a lizard flipper. Um, he's like 43 years old and still flips lizards for some reason. But he uh, he sent a female to us, a black dragon female, and um, it ended up passing away uh, less than two months later. And uh, it actually laid a, a calcified rock hard egg in the cage. And we were like, that's weird, you know, and then it was having contractions, um, but nothing was coming out. So we took it into Dr. Jenkins. Um, Dr. Jenkins gave it some medicine to kind of stop the contractions because the, the eggs were so old and calcified that they had become abrasive. So they were grafting themselves to the cervix um, or the cloaca and um so we had scheduled an emergency surgery for the next day and she ended up passing away that night. But that was the only issue I've ever had with egg binding. Um, once the females get to a certain size, they're usually pretty good about being able to pass pretty much anything. Um, and then on top of that, if you like for the people listening who want to breed the water monitors, you want your animal to lay probably at least two clutches of slugs before you start breeding it. You really? figure, you figure that a fertile egg doesn't change size, regardless of the size of the lizard. The egg is a constant. So whether your lizard is this big, it's going to lay an egg the size of a chicken egg. Or if it's a 20-foot lizard, it's still going to lay an egg the size of a chicken egg. So if you have a female that's only four feet and, oh, yeah, it's cycling, like I can breed it. 
yeah, you can, but it's really, really risky, you know, because you're essentially doubling, tripling the size of those eggs that are passing now. And an animal is not necessarily ready to take that on. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where I tell people, get it, get, if you really want to breed, get a female, get her in an enclosure, get her cycling. Um, all of our information on how we breed our water monitors and set up all of our stuff is on our YouTube channel. You can literally search our YouTube channel for the words how to, and it brings up all the how to videos on everything. And, um, you get them cycling. As soon as they start cycling, they go through uh, they go through a big hormonal jump, so they start growing a lot, you know. So you figure six months down the road, uh, she's probably going to be another foot longer, um, if she's in good conditions. And if she's in good enough conditions to cycle, she's in good conditions. They're not going to cycle if they're not in good conditions. Um, so that's that's one of the things you just you just need to be patient. There's so many people who aren't. I mean, 100% of the people who have bought breeding pairs from me do not breed them. 100%. I've never seen anyone who's bought, you know, a breeding pair of animals actually spend all the time it takes, not get, you know, complacent and then just sell them off or get bored and do something else. I've never seen it happen. Literally zero. So, you know, people always ask me, oh, well, why are you so, you know, fluid about helping other people breed? It's because it doesn't matter, <laughs> you know, and nobody's going to do it. You know, I if somebody was down the street and wanted to breed water monitors, I would be more psyched about it than them. I'd be over there all like, oh, dude, let's change this. Or, dude, I went to Home Depot last week. I got you this new thing, you know, or whatever. Like, I, I don't care. Like, I'm all about it. So. You know, it, it really doesn't matter to me, but that's the thing I see. People get impatient and they just, they want it now, you know, and that's kind of our mentality with everything, but you just can't do it with live animals. It's just not possible. Yeah, we had that conversation not too long ago where something happened. She was like, don't you feel weird like telling everyone how to do this? Then everyone can just do this. You know, everyone can put out springtails on eBay. It's really not that hard. I was like, don't worry. No one actually follows through on <laughs> Like, that's what, yeah, you got to be into it and you got to be patient, especially with something like snakes or monitors, you know, snakes at least three years. How many people have the attention span to stick with something for three years? Very little unless you really and love it. And stable enough life. Yeah, that's a big thing too, especially with monitors. How can you you're not, ensure you can't be moving all the all the, that you're you know. going to be able to keep this thing throughout every life stage, and then two of them, you know? Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to do, but if you I don't know if you have a technical background with the monitors, at least it's a little easier if you have the resources to put in all the work in the beginning, like. The water system's all on a filter and chiller. It's all automated. The misting system's all automated. I have Wi-Fi hygrometers in the cages, so it'll alert me if the humidity gets below 50%, and I can turn the misting system on from my cell phone while I'm at work. You know, plus there's 16 4K cameras with color night vision in here. I don't Jeez. ever, I don't <laughs> ever have to interrupt lizards to know what they're doing. So there's no instances where it's like confirmation bias, where I'm thinking, oh, this lizard's always in the back of the enclosure. No, that lizard's not always in the back of the enclosure. It just hears you jiggle the doorknob and it goes to the back of the friggin' enclosure every <laughs> single time you come in the building. But it's out chilling, doing backflips and learning how to dance when you're not here, but you have to look at it on the cameras. 
right. you know, so it's like, uh, it, it's, you have to be involved as much as you can without being involved too much, you know, and um, a lot of this stuff is, it's real basic. It's just, you know, you have to have a mentality for it and you have to automate as much stuff as you can. Yeah. So what are some, some tips besides like spray or something more, uh, I feel like more palpable for, for normal people who don't have all these amazing enclosures <laughs> you do and Wi-Fi, whatever the hell apps you got on your phone. Like, <laughs> what, are, what are some, some little things people can do to make their lives easier when they're keeping monitors? Well, especially with monitor lizards, you have to realize, and the Salvatores specifically, they are very active hunters in the morning. So they're wired to hunt in the morning, eat early, and bask all day. So that is why on our care sheets, all my enclosures, everything, all the basking areas are on 24 hours a day. And they don't give off light. So those are just ceramic heaters. Um, the big enclosures have two 250-watt ceramic heaters that are above the basking areas. Those are on 24-7. The only thing that's on a timer is the UV lights. Um, and that will keep your animal's metabolism running strong and healthy all the time. People don't realize that you're forcing your lizard to work and eat on your schedule. So if you get home from work and you feed your lizard, let's say you, you get home from work at three o'clock. That's what time I get off work, three o'clock. Well, now I got to thaw food, right? So that's an hour. Then I feed the lizard. So you figure five o'clock, my lizard's being fed. Okay, cool. Eight o'clock, the lights go off. That's three hours that you're expecting that lizard to do, get enough heat into its body basking that it can digest all that. It's not possible. So your animal's literally sitting all night long in a refrigerator getting sepsis. So now it's spending the subsequent days after that trying to catch up, trying to get its gut biome back and digest raw food. And it's, it's horrible for their digestive system and it makes a lot of them sick, makes a lot of them not happy. And it'll keep the females from cycling. If you get them set up like this, their metabolisms kick up and their body, the, the females have so much control over their reproductive system. If they're not biologically able to support life, they will not. So just the same as they say that the, the water monitors and the varanids will reabsorb um, follicles, exact same concept. If a if a water monitor cycles, you know, normally they cycle the same amount of follicles, but they don't necessarily lay that many eggs. And that's attributed to the fact they reabsorb some. Well, the whole mechanism behind them reabsorbing follicles is that they don't have enough sustenance and energy in their body to support life for that many eggs. So it may cycle 20 eggs. And if it's sucking 10 of them back into its system, that's because it knows that it can only support 10 eggs. So you have to keep their metabolism going, keep them healthy, and all of that stuff makes a huge difference. And that's like the simplest thing that you can do in a branded enclosure is just keep a basking area that doesn't give off light so it's not messing up their light cycles. Keep it on all the time so that way they can constantly digest their food. For us uh, 85 degree hotspot snake people, what is that hotspot <laughs> gonna be? Um, my hotspots in the in the larger enclosures are around 120. Um, in the hatchlings, it's on the higher end of that, maybe 130s. Um, you have to realize if 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 I have a, a six foot water monitor and he is 
eight inches thick, if I'm keeping that basking area at a buck 20 and that light is 16 inches away from that slate, I'm increasing my heat saturation by 50% when that lizard lays under there, his back is gonna get in the 150s. So that's one thing you need to be conscious of with the, with the hatchlings, it's not so much of a concern because they're, they're so thin and the bulbs are so much farther away. They're not taking up as much space, but with the larger animals, you can keep a lower basking area it doesn't necessarily mean they're getting less heat. Gotcha. Yeah. And now what is the typical, because obviously you said that it's going to get cooler during the night. So what is your typical cycle time-wise with heat? Um, so the nights will, it'll have a natural cool down in the enclosures just based on the ambient outside the enclosures. Um, but typically that in the cold areas, you're still only gonna see high 70s. So it's not, it's not way, way colder. And you still have that basking area that's on all the time. So the animal has that spectrum of being able to take whatever it wants. Gotcha. Now, I guess we should talk a little bit about what the technology that you do use. So obviously you mentioned things like cameras and sprinklers and stuff. So what kind of uh, technology are you using to do this? So everything's real basic, like uh, the Beehive, um, which I think is a, a company of Rainbird. They do like all the sprinklers and stuff. They have a, a Wi-Fi basically hose controller. Um, so we ran water in here that's filtered um, with a 30 PSI pressure regulator. And uh, this Wi-Fi thing, you can literally just download the app, put it on your phone. You can set it for different time intervals. You can also click it on and off. And it's meant for a sprinkler system outside. So what I did was I just retrofitted it to a uh, the long, black, flexible piping that people use where they just kind of punch in a, a leech line to to feed their plants or whatever. I ran that on the top of all the enclosures and then I punched in um, uh, just foggers, foggers and sprinklers and then that stuff comes on at intervals. And then as far as the camera systems, I use a full Lorex NVR system. So it's all network video recording. So it, it records local, but you can access it on the internet. So you don't have to have a crazy internet connection like you do with something that's recording to the cloud. Um, so everything records here and then you can just access it over, over, you know, your Wi-Fi. And then um, we have, uh, I don't remember who makes it. It's a weird name, but they sell them on Amazon, but they have Wi-Fi temperature and hygrometers and you just set up a hub uh, next to your, your wireless router and that connects to all the Wi-Fi um, probes that are everywhere. And uh, you can label them all whatever. So I have some that are labeled croc enclosure, croc enclosure top, croc enclosure bottom, you know. And then you know which ones are going off because it'll send you email alerts or text message alerts. And um, those are really, really good for incubators. So even for the snake people, if you have an incubator and your power goes out, you don't know if you're not home. Well, these things would send an alert um, if you have, uh, what I do is I keep a battery backup on just my modem and router, and then the actual probes are battery powered. So the internet connection will stay live even after a power outage for three hours. So that allows that system to still send me alerts, um, even if the power goes out. And it'll tell you if the power's out as well. 
and it'll it'll tell you once the temperature starts to drop and you can kind of figure something out from there but you know i'm i'm not home all day i'm at work all day and nobody comes in here you know especially the kids or anything they're not allowed to come in here all the cages are the cage doors are eight feet tall and there's a lock on the top and the bottom so they can't get in so um, you know, when there's issues, I like to know about it. It's nice to have the cameras to be able to double check. Yeah, we how... were just talking about that. What yesterday oh, yeah. we were talking about, you know, keeping the temperature and everything in the room and how we could control it from away. So... Because we were scared just to go away from one day for one day because we don't have any way to remotely adjust temperature, even if. Uh, we don't we don't have much way to to cool our room. We have ways to heat it up. We don't have many ways to cool our room. Yeah. So, so we were kind of freaking out. About but it'd be nice, you know. It's nice to know when it drops. Now, obviously, if it drops, we wouldn't. We would then have to have the heater uncontrolled something. But that's we should we should get. It's those. something that that we're trying to move to more so to to give us more freedom. Yeah. So if you remember the brand, let us know. <laughs> Lacrosse. I just remember. Uh, okay. Perfect. It's like L A. C-R-O-S-S-E or something like that, lacrosse technologies. And then um, even if you have like a heater or something, does it usually get cold there or hot? Both. (laughs) They make make Wi-Fi controlled uh, 110 volt outlets. So you could just plug in a heater to one and plug in an air conditioner to another or whatever if you wanted to go that right, route. The smart plug. You can, I was telling you about the smart yeah. plug. Yeah, she wants to. Her dream is to never have to get up to turn on and off anything ever. <laughs> so, so it started with clap lights. She wanted to see if that was still a thing. But it turns out probably the better the option smart plug. is to make everything like a smart outlet. Yeah. Well, smart outlets work really well. And then I use Nest um, on everything in the house. So we have the Nest thermostat. So I can turn all that stuff on. And it get, what's really cool is it gives you like an energy usage um, report. And it'll actually compare your energy usage to like your neighbors and stuff that have it also. Wow. So you can see like, oh, my God, like I use so much electricity. <laughs> Dude, they think I grow weed in here. This is horrible. <laughs> it really just is another thing to make you cry at the end of the month, I suppose. Oh, dude, my electricity bills are are over $1,600 a month. So, you know, and that's just from, you know, running the lighting and, and everything. And, and even then I wired, like I do all the wiring and everything. So I wired all the hard, like the, the really energy usage stuff is all 230 volts. So it's drawing half as many amps. But it's just so much, even with uh, like I had a 44 panel solar system at our old house and it was still not anywhere near enough. We need about 70 panels to get 100 percent offset. You My need your own heart is hurting. Solar farm. <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, Corey, you make so much money with your black dragons, right? Like, no, six, I don't. I have <laughs> so is your is your building how big is it and is it on your property yeah it's in my front yard so it's literally 50 it's more like 76 feet from the house um the front edge but yeah it's a 30 by 60 steel building and that's actually why i bought this house so um in kind of the middle of the year last year um me and nick crawford uh, were working on a project and he had sent his female croc monitor up to my house and we were messing with natural lighting in the sunroom and I had my big uh, croc monitor, Don Vito, who bred to Yoshi to make the hybrids or probable hybrids, um, which we can talk about if you want. And um, 
So we had gotten some really good successes with that project and figured a lot of stuff out in a short amount of time. And uh, a lot of that is because of the camera systems, number one. And um, number two, we were able to control a lot of the temperature and humidity um, in there, which which kicked uh, the female into a cycle that she ended up laying eggs at, at Nick's house um, a couple months after. And um, so I just decided, you know, it had been a while that I had been kind of thinking about the croc monitor project. And I was like, you know, let's do it. <laughs> so. Um, my parents already lived up in Alpine and uh, my brother lives down the street and uh, we just started looking for houses. I talked to my mom and was like, hey, you know, I think I want to build a steel building. You know, she's like, oh, we'll start looking for properties. And so um, we bought a place up here in December on two acres. And as soon as I had the deed to the house, um, I hit up uh, Busy Bees Permitting Service, Bonnie up here in Alpine, and she handled all the permitting. It took a few months to get the building permitted on the property. And uh, we had to do special permitting for the slab to have the opening for the enclosures because they can dig down to the earth's core if they want um, in the enclosures. <laughs> so <laughs> hopefully they don't. <laughs> but, but they uh, but so once we got all the permitting done, um, yeah, we were off to the races with, with getting the building in. I mean, it was, a, it, well, it still is an expensive project, but I mean, I ended up, we ended up a bit over budget. I wanted to keep it under a hundred, but we ended up about one forty. So, what are you so gonna do? <laughs> if anyone, uh, I think everyone's dream, especially you know anyone who breeds reptiles, is to have a building of that size. Yeah. So I'm glad that we have a number to shoot for. <laughs> <laughs> I have been, you know, I saw Jurassic Park when I was younger. And I remember the like arena that they had the raptors in. And uh, it was like all naturalistic. It was literally just a section of that area that they fenced up, you know, and I've always wanted to do that for a species that I thought would utilize it. And um, I even had this building uh, specially engineered to be 16 feet tall with the walls so I could have two wall heights tall of enclosures. So the actual overall building height is about 23 feet. It's got a, a three and 12 pitch in the roof trusses. Um, but the uh, but I've always wanted these enclosures to just be overly large, you know? And what's cool is it's all built, you know, it's real basic construction, PVC sheeting on all the walls. The walls are never gonna do anything. It's all PVC plastic. And if I want the enclosures to be bigger, I can literally just remove these PVC panels and they can have a run of a 30 foot enclosure if they want. So it's a, that was the whole idea behind it was just to give me so much space that I was never going to second guess ever not having enough space. I wanted to eliminate that variable because I see people online that are trying to breed the crocs. And, you know, my mentality is thinking, what are they not doing? I don't want to know what they're doing. They're doing basic stuff that we've all been doing for forever. What are they not doing? And the two biggest things were large naturalistic enclosures and elevation. They didn't have their animals at elevation. And so do you mean elevation, meaning just in the enclosure, it has the ability to go up and down or literal elevation? Because obviously in San Diego, I don't think you're at elevation. Well, we're at, I'm at 2,500 feet. Okay. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I bought this for. A lot of the biologists that have studied at least the little bit that they have been able to study with the crocs in New Guinea is they go up in the mountains to breed. 
Um, and there's parts of New Guinea that I think get up past 7,000 feet. So um, we're up at 2,500 feet, which should be enough to spark something. I mean, if there's one thing that I know, it's that nobody's been able to breathe these in Florida, and Florida is zero. <laughs> so, so, I mean, we're just trying everything else, you know, and actually with the way that the cooling system set up in the building, because there's a 2,800 square foot swamp cooler that keeps humidity up in here and regulates temperature. It's on a thermostat as well. Um, I can actually change the outflow of the building of the air and change the barometric pressure in the building. There's no windows in this entire building. So it is sealed enough to where I can put it under vacuum if need be. Wow. So I know with snakes, some like barometric pre pressure is huge, especially during during breeding. So are you actually manipulating that as well? Uh, right now, we're not manipulating it so much as beyond what we are just up here at 2,500 feet. We haven't had a reason to start messing with stuff. Um, that's one of the things that we don't want to go there if we don't have to. And I don't think we will have to. Um, so we haven't, we've left it alone, but it is an option. It was something that I was thinking about when we built the building. So we can, we can still do that if need be, but yeah, we're, we're not going to do it if we don't have to. <laughs> a little background on croc monitors, like how many have been bred in captivity? How successful are people? Or is there anyone doing it consistently? There's no one that's done it consistently in a really long time. I want to say there was someone, uh, I don't, I don't remember his name, but I think there was someone who had gotten multiple clutches, but that was it. There was another guy who had gotten a random clutch um, a few years ago, and I think one of the eggs hatched. Um, the only people who have been breeding them consistently with, a, with at least a certain level of documentation who haven't, you can't document luck, right? Which is what happens in captivity 99% of the time. So we can't learn anything from luck. You know, nobody taught me how to win the lottery. I just go buy a ticket. I have the same chance as anybody else. So the Madrid Zoo in Spain has been breeding them pretty decently um, for a while now. And all of the information that they have is on the Internet. Their whole study is up. So that's actually where we got the lighting for all the enclosures is European 230 volt single phase lighting. So, um, you know, I don't know if you guys have been to Europe. I haven't been to Europe, but I understand how their electrical system works. But they have everything's 230 volts, and it's a, a single 230 volt line and then a common, just like we have a 110 and a common. Um, so the lighting is all European 300 watt Ultra Vitalux. It's medical grade UV, and that's what the zoo uses. So based on the hours that we use them a day, they're only good for about a thousand hours or something like that. It's about 75 days of usage. So we have to swap the bulbs wow. out every 75 days. But um, it's one of those things where people keep trying stuff without doing what we already know works. <laughs> you know, like at, at, we all we all use Google when I want to know where the closest In-N-Out burger is, but nobody looked used Google to try to figure out how to breed these animals that nobody knows anything about. And there's tons of people who are already doing the research, institutions and places like zoos and biologists who have actual tangible data. Yeah, and you can literally just go on. You have to do the work. You have to read the research and then come up with a recipe, and that's what we did here. So. 
We'll see if it works. If it doesn't work, we can make adjustments from there, but at least we have a baseline. We have a control to work from. And people don't can barely follow a care sheet, so uh, a care sheet that intense is Yeah, and they're they're on Facebook, you know, making sure their opinions are heard, but that's like recreational outrage on this side, and then I can post a bunch of necropsies of animals and all the information on our parthenogenic project and everything, and it all goes down the wayside because Trump Trump sent a tweet today or something. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so um when when we're talking about the monitors in general these um uv lights can you get them anywhere i mean how do you, how can you get these european uv lights so i had to order them from europe um and then they shipped them it took a few weeks to get them um i ordered i think like 15 of them and uh, so I have a bunch of extras, but but more than that, you can't wire them here. The Hertz, um, the frequency of the wiring that we have is different. So um, US wiring, wiring is 60 Hertz. It's a frequency at which it's kind of like the refresh rate of a computer screen. It's a refresh rate of an electrical system. So right now they're actually running on US 230 volt, which is basically you take your, your your hot wire and your common, and you run a 110 volt to both sides of the bulb, and it'll spark it. But um, we're actually still waiting on our converter to come in, which will convert those to 50 hertz, which is what US, which what the European has. And you'll see on our time lapses, you can actually see the bulbs uh, dim out and come back up because the picture frames and the time lapses catch it in between, uh, you know, frequencies, just like. You know, if you're filming a computer screen, you see the line go down. Right. Uh, you know, the, re the the frame rate of the camera is much faster than the frame refresh rate of the computer screen. So your eye doesn't catch it when you're watching it, but the camera picks it up. Right. And so this is just so, so thought out to a meticulous level that I didn't right. even ever And it's imagine. surprising that, you know, obviously... <laughs> no, no, it's awesome. Obviously, like breeders have a lot to learn and everything, but it, in my eyes, and like if this zoo in Spain is doing it, why aren't other zoos catching on and following? You know, I understand breeders not being able to mimic what the zoo is doing, but I'm surprised yeah, I guess other it all zoos comes down to you know, resources, whether why it's can't private or the other zoos public. do it. There's huge. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the other there, zoos are, there are other zoos. So the Hawaiian Zoo just recently hatched some crocodile monitors as well. Um, and there's other zoos. I don't necessarily think all the zoos have resources for extra projects, especially something that's, you know, I mean, we find it cool, but the average person isn't going to care. They go to the zoo to see the koalas and they don't have any issues breeding the koalas. So, you know, you're going to go where the money's at. So, you know, they're not going to dump a bunch of resources into breeding something, especially when they're not, you know, they're not necessarily an endangered species. They're the top of their food chain in New Guinea. They're the prime predator there, aside from the humans, the indigenous that live there. So, you know, it, it would be that, I mean, you look at the Komodo projects, there's a lot more zoos involved in the Komodo projects. They're a protected species. They're becoming, you know, more and more scarce in, in, in the islands that, are, that they're on. I think there's only five islands they can find them on which you find water monitors on those same islands because they swim just like the Komodos had to. And, um, but their, their habitat is going to crap. So they don't have a lot of food anymore. And even the zoos, they can breed them, but they have to terminate the males. 
um, before they can before they hatch. So why? Like, um, because the breeding population in captivity, we need females. We don't need males. And obviously, it's a lot more taboo to terminate a live animal that just hatched after you sex it than it is to terminate egg. Um, so the uh, like the LA Zoo, like we've been doing DNA sexing for a while, which is I don't understand why people don't do it or. There's so many people who think that they're involved in reptiles and the sciences and have no clue what's going on outside behind the scenes. But the LA Zoo actually sexes the Komodos in the eggs um, off a single drop of blood. And then they pick out which animals they allow a certain percentage of the clutch to hatch out naturally, um, just with uh, just finding out after they hatch, um, whether they're male or female. Um, otherwise, the ones that come back male, um, they've had a really, really good success rate with accuracy with that. So they terminate those and they hatch out the females. Um, the the Varanus, especially in captivity, a huge portion of the animals that hatch out of any clutch are male. Um, there's not a whole lot of females. So if you have 10 eggs, you're going to get maybe two or three females in that clutch. You know, 20, you might get four. You know, it's like it's just not very common. I have a couple of questions off of that. So, do they do they take the blood from like the veins in the yeah. egg or from the embryo? How are they doing that? Yeah, so they take it from the veins in the egg, and we actually do DNA testing on the eggshell as well because there's a membrane that's on there, and that's the amniotic sac, and that actually carries the DNA of the animal too. So, but what they do is they candle the egg from underneath. They take um, a normal pencil and they'll outline the largest blood vessel that they think that they can get to uh, on both sides. So it looks kind of like a track. And uh, they wait, um, obviously, a few, quite a few months into incubation to where you have a solid vascular system uh, to work with. And then they take a really small um, insulin needle and they get in there and they draw 0.01 cc's or something. It's literally a drop of blood. And uh, they actually seal the hole back up with Elmer's glue, which is funny. And uh, because Elmer's glue is non-toxic, you know, and a lot of times the, the blood will clot um, anyway. And when they have had issues, the vascular system in, in the egg actually recovers itself. So you'll see like the vein will actually move over a bit away from the, the egg portion that's damaged, um, which is really cool. So they have like a, a healing effect inside the egg still. But from the ones that they can't get blood from, I guess... Usually the blood that just seeps out of the opening is enough to get on the, the test strips. And then they test them with the, um, they have primers that are specific to the Komodo that were derived from the avian species DNA sexing. And they use those to sex them. And then, yeah, they Elmer's glue them up, put them back into incubation and they're good to go. That's wild. <laughs> and do is there any type of like, temperature you know and other lizards that may be sex determined by temperature during incubation is there anything seen like that in in monitors um i haven't seen anything uh that would be like that i i think more research needs to be done because a lot of the temperatures that people are incubating their monitor lizards at are very very hot like 85 86 degrees yeah you're cutting down the incubation time you know, because obviously you're at a production, you have a business, you want these animals to hatch out in six and a half months instead of nine months. But you're leaving a lot on the table as far as development, animal health, lung development, um, uh, success as far as hatch rate increases when you go down in temperatures. 
any anybody who breeds water monitors, um, John Adrana, especially John Adrana, he uh, he breeds water monitors, the Kamingis especially, and he has um, a lot of good data on this stuff. Um, and he, uh, if you temperature where a water monitor lays its eggs at, it's it's 78 degrees. So we dumped our incubation temperatures down to 80. And honestly, the animals come out larger. The eggs are larger when they're done incubating. And it literally, so this was, this was the issue that we had was we knew that when we played with temperatures on the higher range, that we were getting one to two weeks of extra incubation time per every degree variation that we had in incubation temperature. So if we had dropped down to 80 degrees from 85 degrees, we should see a 10 week increase possibly, you know, at least five weeks, you know, a month and a half probably, but no, we literally saw two weeks in incubation change. So that was one of our very first inklings into it. This is ridiculous that you're incubating at 85 degrees. It's not making the animals hatch any faster. You know, two weeks is not enough of a variation to merit the risk involved in cooking a lizard alive to make it hatch faster, especially when you look at, you know, the the long-term health side effects that could be associated with, and you're trying to keep a customer happy. Um, I mean, it could, you're, you're, you're affecting the initial development of a very complex animal that's gone through millions of years of evolution. And it's stupid to think that that won't have an effect. <laughs> You know, and there's a reason why these animals in in the wild are, you know, their their hatch dates are up to 320 days wow. to hatch the animals. So if you're consistently getting animals to hatch at six months or seven months, that's wrong. You're doing something wrong, you know. So we started playing with the incubation temps and it's done nothing but serve us well. Awesome. And as far as that, sorry, I want to backtrack a little bit. But the uh, croc monitors, you must be dependent on like wild caught individuals coming in. Um, not necessarily. We have captive born and bred animals, but they're they're from Europe. Um, and who I, honestly, who knows if they're actually captive born and bred animals? But that's what the paperwork says. I mean, that's just the reality of the business we're in. Um, but ultimately, I want wild caught animals. Wild caught animals are going to give you the best reactions to things you're doing in the enclosures that are correct. So they've had an experience in the wild. They know what they like. They know what to look for. So an animal that's in captivity gets buffered to captive care really, really in the beginning. So they're not exposed to anything else other than a box. So they're not, and you're, you're basically running with a captive animal. You're running off just what evolution has programmed into that animal. With a wild-caught animal, if you make changes to an enclosure and you see a change in the animal right away, you know right away whether that change is good or bad. It's harder to see that in a captive animal because they're so used to your interactions and your changes and being in a, you know, a subnatural environment. So, and what we're ultimately trying to do, like what you brought up before, is we're trying to create a naturalistic environment. The only way we can tell what's naturalistic is by watching the animal's reaction to the, to the conditions we're giving them. And if that animal doesn't have anything to gauge it on, we're shooting in the dark just as much as that animal is. So, I mean, I, I personally don't, you know, I don't import anything, but I have wild-caught animals. 
Um, but I would never, you know, I'm not trying to bring in more wild caught animals. I don't, I honestly, I don't want any more lizards. <laughs> you know, at maximum I, have enough, I have enough to take care of. So, you know, but that, that was our line of thinking. Um, I, I definitely enjoy a captive born animal and, and, you know, like my big croc monitor that was puppy dog tame, he wasn't captive born. He was a wild caught animal that someone did a bunch of work with. And uh, I was actually a PhD student and he had uh, he was um, a clicker trained and everything. So um, it's as far as temperament, I see why people lean towards captive animals, but it it does not do anything but make you feel like you're getting a better start. It is not necessarily a better start. Everything is what you make. You get what you you know, you reap what you sow. You put in the work and the animals will respond. Yeah. And and a lot of that is as far as where the question's coming from is because a lot of snake people say scrub python people, they believe that the most pivotal thing because they're working with wild caught animals is getting an animal as young as possible. And for whatever mm -hmm. reason, they see more success with an animal that is hasn't as, been exposed. Right. Yeah. So for whatever, for whatever reason, in that species, they're looking for animals who don't have that whatever that imprint is. So we can easily put it in a tub, I suppose, and leave it alone and hopefully it will breed. But it's seeing, or you're saying that that may not have an effect or, you know, do you think that would help you with breeding at all? If you got a fresh wild caught animal in comparison to, you know, a yearling or something that's been out there for a bit? I don't think so in my situation. I, I would imagine in, in the snake situation, the biggest issue is that those snakes aren't living in a box in captivity or i mean in the wild so you would need to get an animal small enough to condition it to a box so that way it would still function if you take an animal out of the wild who's larger and you put it in a box it's going to be stressed out probably stop eating and die if you get you know a wild caught monitor lizard and you put it in you know, and like, say you got one of those bigger ones that the people didn't want and you put it in something like this, it would probably have a, a much different effect, yeah. you know? So I think, I think sometimes people pick animals based on the level of care that they know that they're going to get, which is minimalistic a lot of times. But for me, I'm not doing anything minimalistic. This is the largest croc monitor enclosure anybody's ever built in captivity. So... For me, I'd rather have a wild caught animal and give it something. If I need to, I'll go bigger um, because I want to know what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. But I ultimately, I think that if you got a smaller animal that was wild caught, it'd be the same difference as getting a smaller animal that was captive bred. I mean, they're not they're not running on anything but instinct until they get older. So they're not taking in a whole lot of their environment. You know, I don't I don't think it would make that big of a difference. Ultimately, the only difference it would make would be handling and temperament. And for me, I don't want that. I don't want an animal that I can handle and stuff. That's usually they don't end up being good breeders. And, um, uh, you know, especially for the croc project, that's just not what I'm looking for. And when you when you have gotten in wild caught animals in the past, what kind of steps have you done to whether you have to treat it or, you know, nurse it back a little bit? Pretty much anything you get out of the wild is going to have parasites, you know, especially a small animal. They're eating insects, um, you know, a, a small animal. Their primary diet is insects and amphibians. They sure as hell aren't getting, 
you know, sorry if I, I'm not allowed to cuss on your phone. No, 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 you're fine. <laughs> um, so they, they definitely aren't getting pinkies and rats and chimps. <laughs> you know, they would never see anything even remotely like that until later, later, later on when they're able to take down large prey. Um, but, um, you know, ultimately, I think uh, everybody needs to assume that every everything has parasites when you get it. You have to be set up for quarantine. Our wild-caught black dragon had four types of parasites when I got it, and that was after the guy who sent it to me told me that he treated it. So you never take people's for their word. It's not worth risking your entire collection just to take somebody else's word that they treated an animal. And a lot of times these are people who are treating an animal without ever getting it tested or dosing it properly or taking a fecal sample in after they, they run three months of, of, you know, whatever you got to give it. And um, so they're not double checking. And that animal actually ended up with parasites I had for six months. So we treated it once, took it back in for a fecal, still had some in its system. So we treated it again, took it back in for a fecal. It was clear. And then actually two years later, it crapped out a huge tapeworm. So we treated it again. So, you know, depending on how long they've had parasites, they can sit in their muscle tissue. Um, so it's not necessarily going to show up in fecal. Um, and so it's one of those things where you have to be diligent and I mean, dude, we're talking about expensive animals that take a ton of work to care for. Take the thing to the vet and get a vet tech to check its poop. You know, it's like 40 bucks. They look at it under a microscope. They're, they're, they're a resource. Use them as a resource. It's not an expense. It's a resource. You know, um, I think that's the biggest thing. But it's just you you got to you got to get a vet that knows what they're doing and trust him. And that's it. Everything else is easy after that. Keep an animal healthy and everything, especially a wild caught animal. A wild caught animal will always seize an opportunity to eat. That's how they have survived to be large enough for somebody to pick them out of the wild and ship in an ice cold box across an ocean to the United States. They wouldn't have even lived otherwise. And they sure as hell wouldn't have lived in the wild without being robust. So that's the easiest way to develop a relationship with a wild caught animal is through food because usually they're going to eat. They're always going to eat. And are you giving those wild caught animals, those amphibians and insects first when they come in? Cause you know, that's what they were eating out there. Um, I'd actually, I've never had any wild caught animals were that, that were that small. All my stuff. I never bring in babies of anything, honestly. Um, I just don't, I don't have the time to work with the babies and the babies are, you take a lot of risk when you bring in a, a baby, especially a croc monitor. The croc monitors have the longest nasal passages of any reptile, so they can get respiratory infections really easy. The water monitors are the same way. Um, they get respiratory infections when they're small, a lot of them, just because they're, you know, their passages are small, they get clogged up and they get a bacteria in there and that's it, you know? So it's, it's one of those things where I always work with the adult animals. I don't mind getting a large animal that isn't tame that's already established in captivity it's a lot easier to work with there's a lot less risk involved plus especially in breeding you don't want a small animal and have to sex it you want an animal large enough to x-ray um so you can get a definite on the sex 
And with cages that are this big, you're not going to get charged in a cage this big. You're going to get charged in a six foot enclosure where the animal feels trapped and it only has one way to go, which is towards you mm-hmm. to get out of the cage. But in an enclosure this big, he's just going to crawl 16 feet up to the basking area. I'm not going up there. You know, he knows that's how they're, that's, you know, that's their natural reaction to predators. They live in treetops. So, you know, I don't think, um, I don't think it would be uh, advantageous to bring in any small animals for what I do. The the smallest animals I've ever had here are the hatchlings that I've produced and that's it. Wow. So, and let's talk a little bit about the diet, you know, since, since you've had these throughout the, the life cycle, what are your ideas on diet and what kind of things are you feeding? Um, mostly I feed whole prey. So I'll supplement here and there with um, like if an animal is stressed out or they're not eating as well as I think they should, I'll supplement with things like uh, uh, boneless, skinless chicken breasts. Um, something that I know that they'll go crazy for. I'm mean, going to kind of just kicks their system back up. Um, but mostly I feed real basic stuff, chicks and rats, you know, I'll throw hard boiled eggs in there. A lot of the females, you know, when they're cycling, give them hard boiled eggs. It's literally everything they need to make an egg. It's a friggin' egg. (laughs) Give them an egg. It's not rocket science. It makes perfect sense. So, (laughs) so, you know, little things like that, even uh, toothless when she was here, she's at a different breeding project now in Ohio but she would only eat hard boiled eggs when she was cycling. She would refuse other stuff. And I'm like, oh man, it's that time. So she'd eat hard boiled eggs for like two weeks, three weeks, and then she'd slowly start getting back into normal food. But yeah, super weird. They have weird tastes. Just like any pregnant lady, they have like, you know, I don't give them carne asada fries and ice cream like they want, but I will give them like ground (laughs) turkey or something, you know, special with like cut up eggs in it, you know. I do what I can for my ladies. <laughs> and, uh, are you paying attention? Because obviously something like uh, like rats are going to have a higher fat content, and something like chicken breast is going to be low on the fat on the fat content. Is that something that you're you're paying attention to? Um, not not in a way where I start pulling stuff back. I mean, I do a mixture of both, just because I end up like I have two huge freezer chests in the, in the garage and one of them's full of 500 or so chicks and the other one's got a couple hundred rats. So usually my feeding days consist of a five gallon bucket full of hot water, an entire bag of 20 rats and two bags of 25 chicks. And then that's it. That's what I feed. So depending on who wants what that day, that's what they'll get. But the chicks, especially their feathers, um, a lot of people think the croc monitors need a certain amount of feathers to keep their digestive tracts clean. Um, so I always feed uh, the the crocs always get at least one chick, um, if not all chicks uh, when they eat. Um, honestly, the biggest thing that I look at is making sure that the females have enough calcium because they're constantly cycling. So they're burning through everything. They're definitely not overweight. Um, How many cycles can they have in one year? So the, the water monitors, I can cycle them four times a year. So they'll lay four clutches of 20 eggs a year. Wow. So it's, uh, it's, it's a lot, you know, but their, their, their enclosures are, and their conditions are such that they'll, they'll always cycle whether I breed them or not. So I just keep them cycling and they cycle. If I need them, if I think they need to take a break or say I breed uh, Onyx and she lays a clutch that only has like three fertiles and 17 infertiles. 
I'm like, yeah, well, the next clutch, maybe I won't breed her and just let her kind of cycle through um, just to give her a break. You know, it doesn't matter to me. We're all caught up on eggs anyway. Like we have clutches hatching every few months now, so it doesn't matter. So it's really just about the health of the animals. Keeping their calcium up when they're constantly making eggs is your biggest concern with cycling animals because calcium is used for pathways for everything heartbeats you know all kinds of stuff so you can get metabolic bone issues there's lots of risks involved with cycling a female that aren't necessarily the actual amount of food it's the type of food so you i only use um i think it's exoterra Vitamins, I've had issues with other vitamin brands making the animals a little nauseous for some reason. Um, so I'll supplement with the exoterra calcium when I, when I know that they're on their way. Are there certain signs other than like food changing from the female that they're getting ready to cycle? Yeah, on, on the water monitors especially, you'll see um, usually their feeding response kicks up, but um, Actually, uh, Jim Heck, uh, he was one of the owners of Vital Exotics. He, uh, he actually turned me on to a behavior habit that they have where they'll start digging in the lay box usually or digging around the enclosure like a lot more than normal um, a few weeks before they're receptive. So, and, and it makes a whole lot of sense, you know, and it's something that I never really picked up on, but going back and looking at the video footage a couple of years ago when he had kind of told me about it, um, I'm like, oh, yeah, that does make sense. <laughs> they totally were, you know. So the females will start getting ready to be able to lay eggs. So they will search their enclosure for a valid lay spot before they will begin to actually kick in to a real cycle. Um, so you'll notice little behavioral things where you'll go in the cage one day and the pond is full of dirt. You know, we were like, oh, my gosh, like she dug a friggin tunnel like she's got to be close, you know, and then they'll just stop. Altogether, and usually that means that they're comfortable enough, they found enough areas, they know that there's options and um, they're good to go. So but you'll see swelling as well. And in the beginning, we did x-rays to verify follicle growth a lot with Dr. Jenkins. Um, but once you get their timing down decent, you always want to get away from x-rays. I mean, it's a radiation dose. Um, even the really low dose that the avian uh, species we use for, for the x-rays, it picks up really small bones, um, which is why we're able to sex the water monitors because we pick up their hemipenal calcifications. Um, it's even though it's a really low dose, it's still a dose of radiation. So it's always nice to not do that <laughs> to a pregnant. I can animal. imagine. Yeah, you <laughs> don't want to disturb her. You want to disturb also, her as little as right. Possible. Doing that yeah. that visit, you want to, you know, you're not trying to do that every other week. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And um, like you'll see, especially with the bigger females, they get super lumpy. Like it looks like they ate mashed potatoes. Like it's just like it's noticeable. You know, especially. Once you start noticing something, you notice it every time, you know, so and you guys, I'm sure can attest with the snakes. You're like, once you learned or once you saw that first snake have that one random sign, you're like, oh, my God, that one has it. That one has it. This one has it. This one's almost there. You know, like you start to kind of develop, you know, a criterion for being able to recognize when they're cycling, which is always I good. still don't see it. The follicle, so many times I was like, do you see those follicles building? I'm like, no. If you, if you <laughs> learn, <laughs> I literally see nothing. 
if you let a female hang the right way, you can see the actual lump where follicles are developing. And that's just something to where you see the rounded belly. It's just a tiny bit different and you develop an eye. And I'm sure that happens throughout, you know, all different species. Yeah. Yeah. And, the you know, um, Onyx for one, she'll, um, she carries most of her weight really well. So she doesn't get as lumpy, but another thing they'll do is when they're in the height of their follicle growth, they're super buoyant. So if you watch them on the cameras in the ponds, they're literally like trying to stay upright, like a submarine, like they're flipping on their bellies and like trying to flip back over. And you're like, dude, she's ready to go. She's full of eggs. We'll struggle. And those are things that you only capture if you have cameras in your enclosure. 16.8 <laughs> cameras. <laughs> yeah, I went a little overboard, but you don't want any blind spots. They always friggin' find them. I don't know what it is, dude. They always do. So what is a laybox like for a monitor? So the water monitors are pretty easy. I use, um, it's literally a, a deck box from Home Depot. And the only reason I use the deck boxes is because the walls are vertical. If you use like a tote, usually the walls are at an angle and that's obviously made for strength because you're putting stuff in it. But if you shove it against a wall in an enclosure, that's just a tunnel for your lizard to hide. And it's ne <laughs> never going to use the lay box. Um, so I use a deck box just so I can slide it into a corner and it's kind of sealed up on the edges. And then, um, and you can find all this information on our Instagram page as well. But I use, uh, a bag of peat, a bag of play sand. Don't get crushed granite, get play sand. They sell it by the concrete. And then, um, a bag of pure organic topsoil, like garden soil, topsoil, all organic. Don't get anything with added anything in it. And then, um, I just mix all that up and you can add, you know, whatever you want in there. I used to add perlite, but it doesn't help. Um, so I just do that, mix it all up and that's it. And there's enough organics in it to where if you're keeping the ambient of the enclosure around 85, you really don't need a, a heat mat um, because the organics in it, it starts to compost and the bottom of that will actually stay like in the high nineties. Um, so, and another mistake that I see people make is they put their heat mat that's on their lay box on a thermostat, which is a horrible idea. So um, what was happening, cause we used to do it. Um, I used to do it. So um, what was happening was the monitors were getting super confused. So they would start digging and as they're digging, getting closer to the heat mat or to the probe that's controlling the thermostat, they're removing dirt and aerating the soil, which cools it off well, they get down there and they think they're at a good temp and now the thermostat kicks on because it thinks that the lay box is at 70 degrees when the surrounding dirt is still super hot. And so now they're down there and they're they're probing with their nose for temp and they're like, geez, like it's getting really hot down here and they abandon the whole burrow. And so you'll end up with a monitor who has no idea where to lay because every time they dig down, it's the exact opposite happening that it would in the wild. You should see, you know, as you dig closer to the Earth's core, the, you know, the Earth is a very, very stable temperature. It is the Earth. <laughs> so um, you're not getting a bunch of very sporadic and fast temperature changes. Um, so, I mean, the lay boxes are real basic. For the water monitors, they're completely open top. They're going to dig regardless. Um, and the croc monitors are a little more involved. We have a bunch of different types of lay boxes in their enclosures right now. 
Um, some of them uh, like a barrel. I have a, a wine barrel that has a hole in the side of it. Um, that has a, that has a camera in it too. <laughs> and uh, we have uh, lay boxes that are up, up high, like they would possibly be laying in the canopy down low. Um, we also have where the trees are planted. Those I left those out of the ground on purpose to give them another spot to dig in. We tried to give them every possible area to dig in and all types of temperature ranges to where they can just go nuts. And that soil, I guess we didn't really get into what the main enclosure has as far as a substrate. Yeah, all of these enclosures are just filled with real basic sandy soil fill dirt. A lot of it is crushed granite, um, but it's mixed in with normal fill dirt. So there's nothing special about the actual dirt that's in the enclosure. It's literally just dirt. It's the dirt that was in the front yard of my house. Um, and the dirt that was in the front yard of my house was awesome which I was super excited about because <laughs> it was like super sandy. And I remember uh, we had come up here to look at the house one day and it was raining. And my son, obviously being a, you know, a spaz like his dad, he, he was uh, making like sand castles in the dirt with the mud. And I'm like, yes, that's going to hold a burrow. Like that's all <laughs> I can think of. And so, you know, we got lucky that we got a bunch of really good dirt up here. So Everything's really good. The only reason I say don't buy crushed granite is because it's super aggregative. Like it's it's really rough for the animals. It, once they start digging in it, it'll actually make their their pads bleed. Um, and then uh, there's no advantage to it. You can do the same thing with play sand that's actually made to be, you know, in a in a kid's area. That that crushed granite that you buy from Home Depot, it's specifically designed to grab onto itself to be packed in between like pavers and stuff. So it's a horrible idea. Don't do it. Not that I've ever done it. Don't do it. <laughs> freak me out with just getting dirt from your front yards and stuff and back here. Oh, dude, this is the first time I've ever used dirt from, from the yard. I swear to God, I always use um, uh, pure cypress mulch in all the enclosures. And then I bring dirt in, but this stuff was uh, it's super sandy. So it's not going to hold a whole lot of biologics. And with the amount of water that we run through here, it's constantly flushed. So, I mean, I know they have outside dirt in the wild. They must be, they eat raw, they eat raw dead animals. Like that. They're, they're not going to get, they could eat a corpse that was buried in the dirt long before the dirt would bother them. Yeah. Sometimes you worry or you wonder why we worry so much about outside germs. Snake, like, like, I understand people. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Like, <laughs> no, I'm not sure why, but are you? Do you have any like springtails, isopods, anything like that in your soil? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think we Probably have really. Maybe some ice. Honestly, I don't know a whole lot about the soil, so it's the first time I've been asked about it. <laughs> I just know it was like really nice when we were digging it, and then they actually we had to dig it all back up and mix it all back up because. Um, this whole pad that the building's on had to get compacted down. And then we had to take a compaction test to get the city to sign off so we could do the, the you know, all the stuff we had to do with the normal building construction. So this dirt ended up hard as a rock. So I brought in an excavator and dug it all out before we put the cages in. And now are you just doing like spot cleaning, regular spot cleaning, and then replacing yeah. it? Yeah, the water monitors, they poop 
always in the water. So if you have an animal that's pooping outside the water, there's probably something wrong or the water's too hot or probably too cold usually. Um, the croc monitors, that's like pretty much the only time they come down out of the canopy and the basking sites is to take a dump on the ground. And then usually I just, um, you just dig it up, flip the soil, and then I actually hand water the cages twice a week because um, the misting system is literally just to maintain humidity. It's not a large volume. So it's not like the soil is getting wet. Um, not not in a in any rate that would, you know, be consistent to like watering it. So okay. I water down the yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, we uh, we water down the soils just to keep them good. But aside from that, it's it's really easy. Yeah, just basic spot cleaning. And I backwash the pond filters because I use Aqua's Ultima 2000. So it literally backwashes like a pool. So it's super easy to keep track of and then just add water to the ponds. And that's it. I mean, it's real, real simple. Wow. So and, and how do you grow like things like the palms behind you? I mean, are you growing like full on trees in your enclosures here? <laughs> yeah, I grew these in the last month. So it was oh, hard work. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I bought these. I'm a soil expert and I grew these. <laughs> um, no, it, uh, I, I actually bought them. So there's a nursery uh, down the street, Evergreen Nursery. And I put this huge palm tree in the back of a truck and drove it all the way home. And uh, luckily, we didn't see any cops until I was almost home. So we were able to get all the way home. And then um, uh, I, I had to buy all these and put them in here. So the whole front of this enclosure wasn't on yet. I had taken it all off and uh, we dragged it in here with a bobcat. And you can see it in the time lapse of the build series that I did. We have a bunch of episodes, I think all the way up to like episode 14 or something, um, where I show the entire construction of the building and all the cages. And we ended up putting a rope around the base trunkish area and wrapped it through the roof rafters and then dragged it with the bobcat backwards to lift it up and kind of set it into the hole that I dug. And um, we had to do the same thing with this huge tree. He just spazzed out when I hit on the tree. <laughs> like that. I mean, life flashed before my eyes. That was oh, so God, bad. That was he just bites me in my neck and I bleed out on this podcast. Would be so you get so many views. It'd almost be worth it. Oh. But, so, so this huge tree, knock on wood. Um, it's a 23 foot giant tree that was felling in a, a guy's yard a mile away. And I went to his house and I'm like, hey, can I have that tree in your yard? He's like, yeah, go ahead. I was going to cut it up. And I'm like, yeah, well, I've been seeing it since I moved here. I've been looking at that tree like I'm going to put that in my cages when I finally get this building up, you know. And um, so my buddy and I hooked it up to the bobcat and I dragged it a mile down the road all the way to my house with no issues. And then pulling into my driveway, the rope snapped. And the log was blocking the entire road. So people got out of their cars and we had like this community of people rolling this huge log off the road so they could get by. Oh, I and, thought you uh, loved you. No, they're all actually really cool. They were wondering what I was doing and uh, it's all outdoorsy out here. So they're, they're really nice. And um, 
they, uh, so I finally got the, we had to do the same thing, wench it up and push it in there. And um, yeah, you can crawl right up in this thing. The, all the branches in here you can stand on. I had to stand on all of them to get, you know, a lot of the lighting and other stuff in there. So you can crawl out on everything. I wanted to make sure everything was real sturdy. And there's a deck eight feet off the ground that you could walk out onto halfway up in the huge enclosure. So it's really cool. If you don't, if your enclosure, your croc monitor enclosure doesn't have a mezzanine, it's not big enough. <laughs> Next level. That's right. It's got to have a balcony in it. <laughs> Imagine dragging a tree and then your neighbors are like, what? The, it's for what my yeah. six foot monstrous lizard. I am <laughs> building in my front yard. Yeah, but then I invite them and their kids over and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so neat. You know, it's like our own little Jurassic Park, you know? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, like you right. literally have a zoo level facility in your house. In your house. Yeah, my front yard that mostly I only enjoy by myself. It's nice. <laughs> you know? The best things in life you enjoy by yourself. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, oh, and, and we literally have the world's first parthenogenic, scientifically proven parthenogenic water monitor here so that I bred with Yoshi. So we literally have a piece of Jurassic Park, you know, theory in reality here at the facility these the, all these ideas were thought to be science fiction and put in jurassic park where you had a female that you know created offspring without a male and we we did it here so it's pretty cool so as far as that happening was it just uh before you had a male ready for her and she just laid fertile eggs no actually you can thank uh kevin at nerd for that one for sending me that <laughs> that female that was supposed to be a dude so uh, I never checked the animal's Facebook status, so I didn't know whether it was a male or female. It's pretty complicated. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I wasn't sure what it was identifying as. And um, so we ended up getting it in with the other females, and it just would, like, it was really dominant. It would actually try to kind of lock up with the other females, um, and it stressed them out enough to where they uh, produced parthenogenically. We had a parthenogenic clutch from Yoshi, two parthenogenic clutches from Yoshi, and one parthenogenic clutch from a black dragon. Um, and those animals come out all black, uh, just like any other animal, because it's it's only the, you better stay up there. I'm gonna get, guys, <laughs> do it, I'm starting to worry. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so we ended up, uh, that's, that's what was weird, was a year after we got her, so she, just laid eggs and there were eggs in the enclosure and i'm like that's weird we um i wonder if yoshi laid eggs when she was in there and we just never found them so it was another case of thank god for the camera systems went back to the camera system and he's on the she was on the basking area just starts wiggling her butt and out popped an egg and i'm like no way you know no wonder we haven't been able to get any good breeding out of this guy so, um, yeah, because babies aren't made that way for all the listeners. And uh, <laughs> so we uh, <clears throat> I put a just a makeshift lay box in there as soon as I could. She ended up laying 14 infertile eggs. I actually saved some of them in case there was some other reason why she just decided to cycle there in the freezer. And um, so that was when I was like, hey, why do we have eggs that are still alive in incubation if this was a female? Because at that point, it had been a year. So we have eggs that are coming to term in incubation at that point and other eggs that were a few months into incubation. And um, 
It wasn't until I had talked to uh, Vincent Fricano, who's really, really smart when it comes to monitor lizards, and uh, Mo Moses Nuno, who's uh, an awesome, awesome guy up in the uh, Chino area. He has a bunch of uh, really high-end monitor lizards, and they're all, they're like my go-to people um, as far as when I have questions about Varanus, because, you know, like uh, as much as I know now, um, I was never involved in the reptile trade very much. I always just kind of did my own thing and bred stuff and sold them off to a guy who was selling them for whatever he was selling them for. I didn't know much about it at all. So um, they were the ones who told me like, oh, well, there's a thing called parthenogenesis where, you know, a female can lay eggs with, uh, you know, and the, the eggs will hatch. And I'm like, really? You know, so I started looking it up and, um, yeah, sure enough, the animal ended up hatching out, and uh, I had asked some questions on, uh, you know, this supposed high-end uh, Varanus page on Facebook called Cyber Salvatore, where there's supposed to be, you know, a good number of experts. It's a private group, um, and nobody had any information on parthenogenesis, and they all talked about this sperm retention, which happens in snakes but it has literally been proven never to happen in monitor lizards. It's really? never happened. Yeah, so monitor lizards don't retain sperm for not in any amount of time that would be notable. I mean, they can hold sperm for a month, I've seen. But aside from that, they're not fertilizing clutches from a year ago. Um, because the thing is with parthenogenesis, like I was making reference to Jurassic Park, it was thought to be this insane idea that was off the wall, like, no, there's no way that could happen. So when Komodos in captivity that were wild caught started having clutches of eggs that were incubating and hatching out, they had originally thought, okay, well, this must be sperm retention. That's the logical explanation. That would be the most logical scientific explanation. We know that turtles do it. It's not uncommon to think that an animal that was in the wild before would maybe have encountered a male and retained sperm. You know, they are under stress, whatever. But then they started doing the relatedness testing on the animals and they found out that all of the genetic material that was in the babies is the exact same genetic material as the female. There's no outside genetic material coming in. So all of that animal was created from cells that were already within that females, already within that female. So, um, so I started doing research on parthenogenesis and who was doing this relatedness testing and whether we could do relatedness testing on the brain of Salvatore, because I had the Salvatores. And um, so uh, we had done some other DNA testing through my vet office with Joy um, from Joy of DNA. She's retired now, but she actually invented DNA sexing at UC Davis 30 years ago. Super, super smart woman. Um, she referred me to William Gergitz at Therion DNA in New York. And uh, I spoke to him a few times and I immediately started funding a DNA project to develop a bunch of primers and uh, start sampling Varanus. Um, and uh, now we have the world's first scientifically proven with DNA samples and everything, um, parthenogenic water monitor. I mean, it took a long time and the prime the primers that we use a lot of them are from the komodo project so a lot of the primers that they use for komodo even their sexing and everything they use can be used for other varanids it's just the conditions in which to get those primers 
to work with different DNA are different. So it took a lot of tinkering to get those primers to work. Excuse me, but um, ultimately we were able to get them all to work and now we have 11 primer sets. So it creates, you know, 22 alleles. So we're getting 22 data sets to be able to tell whether an animal is related or unrelated from any other samples that we bring in. And is this something that, say, when you got together with that guy in New York, did you guys end up writing up anything in, or publishing any type of paper about this? Yeah, all of our all of our parthenogenic project and the hybrid project, all that stuff is published on our website, toothlessreptiles.com. And then um, also I have like a real, a lot of transparency on there. So I put our contract with Therion DNA on there as well, because I capped off all the sales that they can have of our project um, to $100 per sample, because I didn't want us to be spending thousands and thousands of dollars, well, me to be spending thousands and thousands of dollars um, for to develop all this stuff and DNA testing, and then for them to go off and say, oh yeah, we'll test your stuff for 500 bucks to the average person. I didn't think that that was okay. So I wanted to have the consumer in mind in the beginning because ultimately all of this stuff is for you guys. You know, they do a lot of stuff with indigo snakes as well. So um, they're, they're the, they're the largest private uh, uh, DNA testing facility in the U S so they do. Um, so I wanted like the average kid to be able to send in a sample of a Varanus for like a school project or something, you know, I mean, a hundred dollars is still a lot of money to a lot of people, but I think in the scope of things and what you're getting back, if you have a reason to do the testing, you can probably afford it. I mean, it's not something where you're going to get the testing done just to know, you know, uh, usually it's a lot of people that are more involved in breeding or have like, you know, research they're trying to do. Right. And now you've said it a couple of times, hybrid, to a lot of people, dirty, <laughs> yeah. dirty, dirty word. So, uh, what do you mean? By <laughs> well, we bred the water monitor to the croc monitor, and we had a clutch. So, how do we get two different monitors to see themselves as potential mates and not kill each other? I don't know. You'd have to ask them. <laughs> I didn't do anything. Like all I did was put the animals together. I knew Yoshi was cycling, and we had seen. Uh, Don Vito, um, our, our big croc monitor male that we were breeding at the time, um, he was definitely interested in a female. He was trying to breed our smaller croc monitor, but she was just really small. And I was like, like, you know, let's try it because Yoshi is so damn old. Her fertility rate is pretty much zero. So we just keep her cycling because it's healthier for her. But um you know, ultimately we just kept, um, kept her going. And then, um, I put her in with the croc and they locked up and I got a bunch of video and pictures and we waited to post everything until after the animals had, uh, hatched out, I think. And, um, cause it's, you know, it's taboo, but it's not like, you know, water monitors aren't found in New Guinea. They're water monitors. They swim everywhere. There's a there's a 100% chance that these animals have crossed paths in the wild, you know, and, you know, there, a lot of biologists believe that the animals that we have today are a direct result of hybridization. That's the only reason we have them, you know, millions and millions of years ago, we did not have all of these species of varanids. you know, they all came from uh, a small group of, of, Varanids and uh, I think the Komodos are some of the oldest, 
species are not the Komodos, the uh, the Gila's, the Gila monsters and Mexican beetids are the oldest of a lot of the lizard species on on Earth, period. Um, and then obviously the Komodos and then everything branched out from the Komodos where we have the lace monitors who are closest related. Then you have like the water monitors third. And it, it makes sense. I mean, the, the Komodos are the largest lizard by weight in the world. Then you have the croc monitors who are the longest lizards by length. Then you have the water monitors who are pretty much the largest lizard by weight we can keep in captivity um, as, you know, consumers. So, I mean, I didn't do anything. It, here's the thing. If it's that unnatural, it just won't work. I can't make that sperm fertilize that egg, no matter how many Katy Perry songs I play. It's not gonna work. It just ain't going to work. I can't do it. So if it's really unnatural, it just won't work. So right now we have, um, we hatched out three uh, probable hybrids. One of them ended up with, uh, it looked like a metabolic bone issue. It just failure to thrive, um, which is uh, something that we had kind of dealt with. Uh, we we kind of thought it would happen on some of them because if they were hybrids, they would have had a very a noticeable snout deformation. I mean, if you look at a croc monitor, it's got a huge blunt snout. You know, if you look at a water monitor, it's more pointy, like almost like a duck. And um, so it's uh, it's just one of those things where we knew they were going to have issues with their snouts. So a lot of them didn't have egg teeth or the egg teeth were actually rolled over. So it could be said that maybe they would not have hatched naturally um, in the wild, but they still had egg teeth. One of them was so rolled over that its egg tooth was actually lodged in its lower jaw. Um, so that one we think would for sure not have hatched, but we had done some studies prior to see when we could cut the eggs and be at the least amount of risk for the animals, um, which we had done on some normal water monitor clutches before. And, uh, so we had taken precautions before and we had known enough about hybridization to know that we were probably going to need to cut the eggs in order to keep the animals healthy and to make sure they hatched. But ultimately at this point, we don't really know whether they're hybrids or not, but I can tell you one thing, we're the only people in the industry who have the DNA testing capability to be able to check to see if they're hybrids. Any other breeder would be done at this point. They would hatch those things out, send you pictures of their overrolled snouts and say, these are hybrids. And that would be the end of it. They're not using science to prove or disprove stuff. And we're happy to prove that this is another clutch of parthenogenic animals and they're not hybrids. That would be fine too. We honestly don't care. Just like the, 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 the pushback we got when we were doing the parthenogenic project, we're like, oh, you're gonna, those are, those are uh, uh, sperm retention, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, even if they are sperm retention and we DNA test them and it proves to be sperm retention, those would literally be the first the ever sperm right. retention right. water monitors ever in the whole world ever. Right. So, so we're so doing way. first. So who cares? Like, dude, you're late, you're you turn off doing anything. You know, right. it's it's insane to me how people can sell a T negative water monitor for twenty thousand dollars and yet still think that they're in genetics enough and still not getting anything tested and then have the nerve to ask, hey, where are you getting your stuff tested? And it's literally in their same city. 
I'm sending my water monitor stuff across the United States to get tested. And these people that think that they're, you know, advancing the field haven't even used Google before to find the literally the best place to get your animals tested is in your same city. I have to ship all my stuff in dry ice. You could literally drive your stuff over. It's just insane. The amount of resources that people have that they claim not to have just simply because they're not driven to use them is, is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We talk about that a lot, like hobby science versus like science. They're science. just accepted. Yeah, bro science. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah, what it like, is. Oh, I did this. So it's it's real, right? I'm, I did this. So this is what it By is. By a guy with a like... high school education like 20 years ago, just because he's been doing it for 20 years and he's making these assumptions doesn't mean that they're actually proven. And we have that time and time and time again over, yeah. over and over again, especially in snakes. It's all anecdotal, you know, and uh, I think a lot of people have forgotten that and they have heard the same stuff so many times for so long that they just assume somebody must have done the research and it must be true. And in reality, a lot of this stuff is just carried over from 30 years ago when they didn't have all this testing and they weren't able to x-ray animals and pick up, you know, calcified hemipenes. And nobody was ultrasounding water monitors at their own house, you know, using a cell phone to ultrasound, which is really cool, which we used to have an ultrasound here is just a pain in the ass. You can't get the lizards to sit still. Um, and uh, so I just think a lot of it is just outdated information that a lot of people are afraid to update because they would have to relearn a lot of the stuff that they've been taking for granted for so long. It's also you get badgered for new ideas in this hobby as a private hobbyist, especially as a young person. You get badgered for new ideas. Um, you know, there's so many Even people who look down, <laughs> who look down on the, especially the new generation of keepers, in particular in snakes, who are into all the enrichment, all into that stuff. Now, I'm not full. I'm not fully there yet, but I respect all the work that they're doing in the field. But while all the guys who have been in it for a long time are just being like, oh, these kids don't know what they're talking about. Look at these idiots trying to give enrichment to a snake. And uh, I, you got to be able to see both sides so that you know that like, because the answer is typically in the middle and you got to be willing to change your mind sometimes in order to be on the right side of history for sure. Yeah, I think a, a lot of times in the reptile trade, you're being judged on your successes when in reality you should be judged on your ability to take risks and your failures. You know, I mean, there's a ton of people who are doing well, and I'm sure you can attest in the snake breeding industry, who do things a certain way and it gets them by and they do really well, but the average person, you know, wants to figure out a different way to do it. It might not necessarily be better and it might not necessarily be worse, but at least they're willing to try something new. And for other people who are just, you know, crapping on them for having a new idea or wanting to take a risk is insane. It's that mentality that those people have, which is what advances our trade. So those people that are taking risks and trying new things, that is the only reason that DNA stuff has been changed, you know, or we've gotten, I've been doing the sampling and stuff, or, you know, like if nobody was advancing anything, I wouldn't have uh, over 3,000 cubic foot croc monitor enclosure in a building, you know, it's, it's insane. So, you know, the people that crap on those other people are just afraid that they might pass them in some way and make them look stupid. I mean, that's pretty much all it is. It's all personal fear. 
I just think that, you know, a lot of people need to take more risks and there are plenty of risks you can take in the reptile trade that don't involve putting your animal at risk. You know, there's tons of data out there from biologists or even like when we, we were the very first people, myself and my brother to ever breed earless monitors in captivity in the United States. And they're from Borneo. And we have all the documentation on all that stuff. There were other people who supposedly had done it and they had no documentation, you know, and we had um, the author, you know, um, uh, Daniel Bennett. He had he had contacted me because he was uh, getting ready to, to write another book and he wanted to write um, uh, an article on that horny earless monitors and me and him had a conversation and it was basically hey, these people keep saying they've done this. Do you have documentation? I'm like, yeah, we have tons of documentation, lockups, you know, uh, tons of things. And um, and I was like, you know, it's weird that these monitor lizard people will post pictures of their breakfast they ate that morning. But if they have a world's first animal that hatches out, their camera phones take a dump. They don't even have like a cave chisel drawing, no nothing. It's just all hearsay. Like, come on, dude, it doesn't make sense. Like you're so full of it. So, you know, it's it's 2019 people. Documentation is so easy. It is so easy, you know, and I take that to a whole nother level. I mean, there's a whole, there's a reason why my pictures and information are published in veterinary medicine books. You know, it's because I have the documentation to back up the theories that a lot of these biologists and veterinarians are pushing in the medical field, especially with 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 the vets. And um, I'm very lucky that a lot of people reach out to me for documentation. I'm always willing to give away any information I have. You know, it costs me you know a good amount of money to be here and a lot of effort on my end, but anything that I gain, I'm always willing to give away for free. Knowledge should be free. I'm not gonna ever hate on anybody for coming up with new stuff. You give me a new idea and I will tell you if it's good or not and I will try it and let you know. You know, I don't care. I don't have that type of ego. I just don't. So Borneo earless monitors, I did not know that. That yeah. what, what year was that? Uh, I think we started breeding them in 2015. That was actually the only reason I started Toothless Reptiles and started our Instagram page that we now have over 100,000 followers on. If you scroll down the Instagram all the way to the bottom, that's all earless monitor posts because I was told that there was a program called Instagram and that they had a hashtag earless monitor and there was a bunch of pictures on there. And I'm like, oh, cool. Well, we're trying to get the information about these animals out to kind of gauge the market. So yeah, let's start an Instagram account and start the hashtag earless monitor. And I had never used social media at all for really anything. And uh, cause like I said, I wasn't involved in the reptile trade. You know, I'm still kind of not to be, to be honest. And um, uh, so I started that and then uh, I had posted like a picture of a water monitor and there was a bunch of people that liked it. So I just kind of went off in that direction and that was pretty much it. Yeah, because I think the the first time I ever saw those was at Tinley, and I think it was maybe 2014. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, I didn't even know that these could be imported, or I don't know where these came from. These are <laughs> out of left field, and I was just glad that someone had them. But, uh, yeah, I didn't know that you, you were the one who bred them for the first time. 
Yeah, yeah. So there, there's actually no laws against the ear list, but they are CITES listed now. And USFW won't allow any more of them to come in, which is good. There was a lot of people who were caught with those things taped to their abdomen trying to sneak them into the country, which is insane. All of our stuff has USFW clearance, so they cleared all of them all to come over from Europe, um, which was another reason why we were able to sell to like zoos and stuff, because they want to see that documentation. And um, so, yeah, it was it was one of those things where my, my brother is really, really detail oriented. He's just like me and he wanted he likes the challenges as well, but he doesn't like to put in. I won't say he doesn't like, but he, he usually deals with smaller species just because it's it's more detail oriented on a smaller scale. It's easier to handle. So he was really, really successful um, with those guys right off the bat. And um, he'd done a ton of research, talked to a ton of people just like I do. And um, yeah, me and him were able to uh, kind of get, get some out there, but there's just so little known about them. If those animals were six feet, they would be like insane to keep. Everybody would keep them if they were huge, you know, but they're just not big. And is that like, because I mean, it, it almost brings you like reminiscent to a to a heloderma but it's i'm sure the total opposite keeping philosophy of like a healer they're aquatic and they're nocturnal so they could get they're pretty much opposite <laughs> yeah do you have to do anything special as far as uh humidity like like how exactly are you setting up an enclosure for for that animal so we actually did a basic earless monitor care sheet video on my YouTube channel. Um, and that was because the market that we were hitting, nobody knew how to take care of these animals. And when you're asking, you know, $12,000 for a trio, which is what we were selling them to the zoos who wanted projects, um, the uh, it's, it's hard for people to spend that money when they don't know whether they're going to be able to take care of it. And when there's only one resource to contact in order if there's issues, you know, which was us. So um, I did a basic care thing and it's, it's basically you set it up like a turtle tank almost. It's just rock and aquarium. You have a sump area. There's a river flow and um, it's just a low spot and a high spot with a, we had like a Fluval FX6 going filtering the water and the humidity is you want to keep it up there, but you know they're they're literally in the water all day they're they're aquatic lizards and all they eat is friggin' night crawlers it's insane and so they'll gator roll a night crawler so they'll grab onto it and just gator roll and they're like this big and you're like damn you know and even the babies like if one of them grabs onto a night crawl the other one grabs onto it like they get all crazy and you know they can't see anything because they're nocturnal you know so like every time you interact with them you're like you look like a tweaker you got like a a red light on your forehead using infrared because you don't want to turn on the actual lights you're like dude this looks so sketchy but that's how you have to deal with them otherwise they get stressed out you know they're they're super they're like super super sensitive to captive environments wow it's a very unique animal yeah um okay my last question has nothing to do with reptiles but do you feel like you are an extremist in other aspects of your life or is it just when it comes to the reptiles? Oh, no, everything. I go all out with everything. My parents will tell you the same thing. It's always been that way. I go 100% into all my projects. 
Um, you know, whether it was uh, gymnastics growing up and I ended up, you know, trying to train for the, for the Olympic training team until I blew out both my shoulders, you know, and then I played college football, blew out my knee and my back and my neck. I did MMA for six years and had three knee reconstructions. You know, I did, um, we do score off-road racing. We did that for a long time until we got hurt. And then now I'm building a, a half mile car. I'm trying to break 200 miles an hour in the half mile. So, you know, it's like anything I do, I always take it to the edge and I'm super obsessive. If I have a project that's not finished, it's just constant thinking and problem solving until it's done. Um, even this building, I'm sure you guys realized it went up pretty quick. I had all of these cages pre-built and designed in my yard before they had even had the building up. And um, then as soon as the inspector left, I got right away into finishing up all the electrical um, because I had people coming over the next day to help put up the actual walls of the enclosures. And like, if I have a project, it's nonstop. And, uh, like I told my wife, I'm like, bring me sandwiches and water. You just need to keep me alive because I'm not gonna, like, I don't stop for anything. It's really bad. Like I'll get dehydrated and get migraines and I'll realize like I haven't eaten all day. I'm like, dude, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't good. Like I've always been a, an athlete and an extremist, like, to, to a crazy point to where now I literally have, um, I have to have heart surgery in October because I have scar tissue built up on my heart from being too much of a psychopath. <laughs> so, so, so it has served you and it has. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't trade any of it for the world, you know, and I don't take pain medication. So I did my last full knee reconstruction with no pain meds. So it's, uh, I've always been, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's crazy it's crazy you don't want to be around me for too long i'm competitive <laughs> <laughs> so did you have any other questions no, that was we are over or we just approached two hours so if anyone awesome. would want to uh contact you about anything monitor wise or just check out what's going on where can they find you um, so you can check out our website, www.toothlessreptiles.com. There's actually um, a bunch of pictures on there. You can find the information on our parthenogenic project, as well as um, all the info that we have published right now about the hybrid project. Um, there will be more of that to come uh, later on this year. We have a biologist named Tony Abruzzi. He's going to write all that stuff up once we get our results. He's going to write up the parthenogenic project and the hybrid project in one big uh, write-up so we can publish it. And then um, also we have the Instagram Toothless Reptiles, the Facebook page Toothless Reptiles, and you can email me at Corey at ToothlessReptiles.com and it's C-O-R-Y. So you're welcome to hit me up. If you have any questions, email me or shoot me a message or send me a text message. My phone number's on there, 619-549-1508. That's my cell phone. I always talk to people. They have questions about water monitors, even if I didn't sell you one and you want to call me, I might give you a hard time for a minute, but I'm going to break <laughs> I'm going to break and I'm going to help you out. I always help everybody out. All this information is free, so feel free to hit me up. Cool. And as for us, PortCityPythons.com. PortCityPythons on Instagram. PortCityPythons on Facebook. ThePortCityPythons at gmail.com. Ooh, that was a good one. What do you mean by that? <laughs> it will be available soon. I forgot about the email. Oh, you I, always I won't give you guys my number. You got to message me first. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> nobody will call. That's why I always put it out. We literally gotten one call. I don't think that's true. We've never gotten someone. Yeah, maybe we get a text. (laughs) We get a text, but not one person has called us. I'm fun. I'll put my number just because I feel like that's the easiest way. 
Yeah. Way to go back and forth with people. Yeah. But yeah, they don't call, that's for sure. <laughs> but that's okay. I'm not much of a phone a phone talker myself. So <laughs> millennial, you know. Um, but thanks again, Corey, for coming on. Sorry if all of our questions are very like basic lower level. No, no, it was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great opportunity. I don't think there is any lower level for Corey. <laughs> we'll it, ask the question, but he'll bring it. To he'll bring it higher. Talk about alleles and everything. And yeah. like, whew, that was way over my head. <laughs> no, but that's good. That's what we need. Thank you so much for being here. We will still be on the line with you. But uh, thank you, everyone who listened this week and hung out with us. We will catch you next week and check out our live streams on Facebook.